Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, Chairman and CEO of Black Hall Studios, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Moving into 2020, I was thinking about my project to expand the studio overseas into the UK and about how I might utilize this podcast to express my personal values as a businessman and entrepreneur. With the onset of COVID-19, like you, my world changed and changed and changed again. Shutting down the studio for three months was not part of my plan in 2020. And now reopening the studio is exciting, but has huge challenges. And here, my friends, is where being an entrepreneur is the most impactful. I like new ideas. I want to solve problems. I want to create the best environment for my staff and our clients. And I'm doing just that. You're going to hear a lot about this incredible year we're having on this podcast, from a cultural revolution to an international healthcare crisis to an unwieldy political scene, the world has never been more frightening or more exciting. I can't wait to see the movies that come our way because of it. Thank you for joining me, for listening. I'm a fan of yours, and I'm grateful that you're a fan of mine. There's a lot more to come with the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today on the podcast, I welcome two of my friends, both Atlanta-based entrepreneurs. Miles Neiman, publisher of the Georgia Hollywood Review, the South's largest entertainment publication, and Chris Ledoux, CEO and founder of the incredibly impressive special effects company, Crafty Apes. And as you will hear, we do not hesitate to jump into my favorite line of discussion, philosophy. What does it take to be an entrepreneur? What's the mindset? What do we share? What makes us different? Are we creative? Do we buck authority? Do we love what we do? Are we leaders? Hosting a discussion between friends on what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur was not easy. Miles Neiman, a well-known international publisher whose lifeblood is building alliances, is a very different species than special effects guru extraordinaire Chris Ledoux, who left the wolves and bears of Alaska to create digital worlds to entertain the masses. Both hold their own with me, and both have promised me a rematch. So prepare yourself for a bit of philosophical boxing on this one. It made me smile to listen, and it's a peek into a conversation that is sure to be continued over a beer or maybe a scotch. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. Today, we're very fortunate to have two entertainment entrepreneurs from Atlanta, Georgia. You got Miles Neiman and Chris Ledoux. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank Hello. you very much, Ryan. Well, you know, I have some inkling of the kind of trauma it takes psychologically to become an entrepreneur, but I'm always, <laughs> interested, <laughs> I'm always interested to know the trauma that other people who are entrepreneurs a tribute to their kind of driving journey to build a life that is independent. So, Miles, why don't we start with you? Tell me, what do you think the traumas in your life were that led you to entrepreneurship? I love that, Ryan. That's great. You know, I, when I was in my 20s, uh, this very successful local restaurateur here in Atlanta and I were having a drink, and he, he said to me, You know, entrepreneurs are people who can't 
get a job working for anybody else. <laughs> so I think that goes along with that sentiment that you're expressing, which, uh, you know, I just, uh, I never really enjoyed working for somebody else. And I never really found my passion after college working for other people. And I think um, I couldn't really dissect exactly how or why my journey into entrepreneurship began, but uh, I, I think it stemmed from that uh, inability to uh, follow someone else's structure. What do you think the key motivating forces are? Like, what, it, what is it about entrepreneurship that gets you going? For me, it's, it, I think it boils down to creation. You know, I, I really like to create things, to, to develop a vision, um, put together all the components. You know, in a, in a business, obviously, it's more than than just creation to be a successful entrepreneur. You have to be a successful implementer and you got to be a successful manager if you want to have a staff. So these are all challenges, I think, that, that we perfect as we go along the way. But, um, you know, some come more naturally for others. But uh, for me, that's been my experience. Well, Chris, you grew up in Alaska, which is trauma yeah. in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> my other friend, my other friend who grew up in Alaska became one of the most famous Navy SEALs of our generation. And he seemed to think that being a SEAL was easy after growing up in Alaska. <laughs> what part did you grow up in? I can't remember. He grew up in some little town that was like, his dad was like that, um, that character who's the magistrate, judge, sheriff, right there. I, I can't remember what they call oh, it. Oh, he was in one Alaska. of the villages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was in a village. Oh, okay, yeah. He's in a village, and yeah, he's not wrong. Like, <laughs> tell us. I mean, you you're a reflective and self-aware guy. What do you think the things that led to you being such a driving entrepreneur? How do you what do you attribute that psychology to? Uh, I was uh, I was miserable working for other people. I mean, I it was uh, yeah, I was killing myself and. You know, I love working hard. It's, I mean, I love visual sex. It's fun. And I, you know, it was pretty simple. It was like, well, if I'm going to work this hard, then I think I'm going to reap the benefits of it. You know, so I, right opportunity came along and, you know, I was a shameless opportunist. It seemed pretty obvious. And, uh, you know, I figured if you could order a, offer a better product and then I could live and die by my own hand, that's way more exciting. You know, I just can't, uh, I was a good VFX employee, but not good at much else. I was probably the worst fish and game employee in Alaska history. And, uh, you know, I just, what did you I love, do, I love, you do at fishing game? I was 19. It was my first, uh, first summer back from college. And, uh, they flew me out to the middle of nowhere in the Alaska peninsula to count fish. So when they, uh, they have to have a certain amount of fish because salmon uh, spawn every four years and they swim upstream back to where they were born. And they have to let a certain amount of fish escape up the river before they open the fisheries for sustainability. And so they build these, uh, what's called weirs, these wooden bridges across the river and you just, you're in the middle of nowhere with one guy, they throw you a shotgun, ward off bears, and you're in this cabin, and you just sit there in the weir, and you just, you let a gate open, all these fish go through, and you just sit there with the clicker and count them. And then you radio back to the base and say, we saw 86 fish at 4 o'clock, and they're like, great. It was 98, so it was the same year Timothy Treadwell was out there from Grizzly Man. Like, I wasn't very far away from him at all, like a few miles. And wow. uh, so it was, uh, yeah, there was bears all over the place, and, you know, I had a shotgun, and you know, I'm partial redneck, but not redneck enough to like probably kill something that well. So it was uh, a little bizarre. Did you, did you ever have a bear encounter? Oh yeah, no, they came up right to the cabin. They were crawling all over the place, and you know, the guy I was uh, one of the guys. I was a rover, so they kind of sent me all over. And one of the guys they put me with is this 
kind of philosophical hippie from the Eugene, Oregon. And, you know, he's like, Oh, you just, you know, you don't kill him. You know, you just, I'm like, Oh man, what is wrong with you? Like there's a bear out there and I'm a computer nerd. It's ridiculous. And, uh, <laughs> now, yeah. Now you, you fancy yourself a bit of a philosopher. I mean, you're, you're an incredibly practical person too. What does that mean to you? Like what does being a philosopher mean? Well, I just think you have to think about existence. You have to, uh, for me, it means sort of trying to, you know, create an objective opinion of my experience. So separating myself from all external osmosis and influence and saying, okay, I'm not going to get caught up in whatever I was taught from the year I was, day I was born. I'm going to think what kind of world would I want to live in? And what's the point of this? You know, what am I doing what, here? So I, I like to hit reset and go back to the beginning. That's awesome. What do you think? What do you think the point is and what kind of world do you want to live in? Uh, I'm into this philosopher lately named uh, sort of a, sort of a made up character named uh, Hansi Friedrich. And it's a concept called a meta, metamodernism. And, yeah. you know, I think the environment is something, you know, we kind of, it's sort of weird. We all know climate change is happening, especially in Alaska, where it warms twice as much, you know, based on the angle of the sun. And, but we don't really do anything. We just keep going about our lives. You know, we, it's, you know I, I'm guilty of it. You know, we get caught up in these little uh, bubbles of our own existence and reality. And I think that it's weird. I kind of, I think the more, I think there's a holistic nature of things. We realize we can't separate things. So, I have some bizarre theories that sort of Carl Jung meets quantum physics. You know, there's sort of this interconnectivity to everything. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, this collective unconscious, you know, this sort of, if everything is energy and we're all right. linked, then there's this sort of, you can't really separate it. Western science likes to tr try to isolate things to identify them, which makes sense on a first step logic level. But when you sort of take it out there, you realize you're part of this whole. So I think, you know, there's a, a certain enlightenment that we're kind of going to go through. We're in a chaotic period, I think, where uh, a lot of the old sort of mores and you know, institutions are going to die out and people are going to think, okay, what world would I want to live in? And I think, you know, maybe some kind of Gene Roddenberry-esque Star Trek future, hopefully, hopefully, you know, but otherwise it might go to Metropolis. Do you think the universe has a personality? Oh, yeah, yeah. If it's influenced by... Uh, you know, part internally, there's independent forces at work, but not truly independent as we think about it. But all these different forces are pushing and pulling, you know. So it's, you know, we have a certain amount of will to create an influence. Just how, you know, gravity is a factor of mass. You know, I think our if we are energy, then we can exert push and pull and influence on the universe, which, and if you look at it from a wide enough angle lens, resembles its own personality. Just how we're just a bundle of trillions of cells. Right, but do you think it just resembles a personality, or do you think the universe actually has personhood, consciousness? We probably make up that uh, that personality, you know, all of our individual yeah. energies and, and inputs. I haven't drawn a conclusion there yet. You actually pose a very interesting question. You know, I'd have to think about it. I have an answer for that. I don't know very much. You mean empirically, ahead, Ryan, like a, like from a higher, like a higher power personality or a or a element that the universe exhibits. Or do you, what do you mean by does the universe have a personality? What I mean by that is you have a personality. I experience Miles Neiman as a person with a very particular set of characteristics that I can recognize your voice and your intonations. I know when your laugh is real or fake. I mean, I, I, I have a sense of who you are as a person, right? And the right, same with right. Chris. So, you know, then when I say, well, Miles has a personality and Chris Ledoux has a personality. Ryan Millsap has a personality. Where did personhood come from? Where did personalities come from? Do we possess something that the universe does not possess? No, 
the mechanisms to adapt to our environment. Right, but these these laws that we observe, as you trace them back, you it's very complicated to try to unwind where laws would even come from or where adaptation, the notion of even trying to adapt, trying to survive, life being better than death, all of these fundamental ideas that we live by and that we use in science to observe, and yet philosophically, they become incredibly complicated to explain if the universe doesn't actually have a personality. It would suggest there's some sort of inbuilt code into it, you know, the nature argument, that there is to a degree some sort of code we arrive with. We don't arrive completely as, you know, Apple IIEs with nothing on them. Um, there is Correct. some kind of need and desire to survive and to reproduce. Well, you could argue reproduce, but at least, at the very least, to survive. Correct. So then in that code, right, which then implies that someone had intention, who is that someone, right? It might, not be, ultimately it might what not be how we think of it. It might be a concept that's a little beyond our current evolutionary capacity. I mean, that's possible. And philosophers for thousands of years have punted questions of mystery. You know, philosophers and theologians have just gotten to difficult places and say, we just don't understand. Okay, well, that's one of the options. But the next option is to say, all right, well, but logically, am I being illogical based on everything I know? Now, you could say to me, well, Ryan, you're an idiot, and so are all other human beings. So, like, your logic doesn't really count. <laughs> but, but right now, that's all I have. So if I have to stick to my own logic as a human being, then it seems like I've never experienced anything that has code, that has intention, that isn't somehow tied to a person or a personality, well, not necessarily it may like be a tied human to being person. I could agree that it's, that logically, because you're, you're right. If we if we say that we're not smart enough to understand, then the argument ends. So let's throw that out for a minute. And if you say, okay, well, if there's intention, why does it suggest that it actually comes from a person? That's that's where the leap becomes from. Intention can happen without necessarily being driven by a what we might think of as a sentient being. So you think that something that's not self-aware and conscious can have intention? believe it's possible yeah what would that look like i mean how would we how would we attribute any intentionality to something that wasn't even conscious of itself or aware of what it was doing i mean i would say okay you know gravity exists what's the intention of gravity you know that's a force if these are all just forces no no but what we're redirecting we're, energy listen a hundred percent we're in agreement that it's that we can observe forces all at work in the universe that is that's the role of science is observation what I'm asking is the, the very complicated philosophical question, which is there is intention that we observe in the universe everywhere. Where did that intention come from? How can it be from anything that, that ultimately doesn't have a personality, right? So you could say, well, gravity, but where did gravity come from? And why is gravity, why was gravity put into the universe? And as you trace all of these things back, then ultimately you have to say, did somebody intend anything? Was there intention or is this all truly just randomness? If it's all just randomness, the difficulty then becomes to account for our self-awareness. Because where does self-awareness just appear if it didn't have an origin? I think uh, personality is more of a human concept, whereas the rules of the universe perhaps are more scientific or theological, depending on you know, your viewpoints. What's the difference for you between theological and scientific? What is that? I mean, when you when you put those in contrast to each other, well, I think of 
I think of spirituality as as more as having different different guidelines, different inspirations, and different rules, so to speak, than science, where science is more mathematical, empirical, observation. Where I think spirituality is more of a you know a metaphysical type of feeling. I guess it's obviously different for everybody in the human experience, but I, but I think that would be how I would define the difference between science and, and theology. Now, that's, what's interesting to me about that is that I consider science to be a subset of philosophy, and I consider theology to be a subset of philosophy. So I look at theology and science really under the same umbrella, which is seeking understanding. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's sort of that a quote, you know, anything sufficiently advanced will appear as magic. And you know, if you look at you know, a lot of theology, it's basically it's it's, it's very close to what we might describe as magic. And so, to me, it's back to the holistic thing. I think I, I would agree with you there. I think it's all part of the same thing. It's a it's just it's people seeking, you know, and understanding. Like you said, what is the intention? You know, why am I here? Ultimately, it comes down to. And I appear to be self-aware, but you know, even defining that becomes a little rough. Well, and the word you use, magic, I think is an incredibly important human notion because I'm not sure if there's anything that we value more than actually trying to find magic. And when I say I that, what I mean is, right, some sort of tapping into the energy of the universe such that we discover some new law of physics and we say, magic. We meet someone and fall in love and we say, God, it's magic. You could even tie that into the entertainment industry, Ryan, and storytelling, because I think at the at the center of storytelling is the idea of magic, you know? Right. So, so this notion, and I mean, this is really like what I'm driving at in this philosophical conversation, is that our deep longing for magic is not indicative of a species that was born into a meaningless universe. I completely and that's agree. what I'm trying to that's what I'm trying to account for. Well, okay, then assuming well, yeah. assuming there's meaning, then you know what would, given what we can observe about the universe, what would the potential meanings be? Oh, well, I mean, we we could go on. Endlessly. I mean, yeah, that's that's the um, thing is, is there there must be some theory that if there's if we see how life works, or at least that we what we perceive life to work, um, being that our senses, you know are somewhat blunted, but we learn more all the time and, you know, further uncover magic, you might say, or actually get rid of more magic and maybe even create more as we find out more. Um, then there must be some sort of hunch or hypothesis on, you know, what the intention might be. But that's the problem is it seems to be very, there does appear to be a certain randomness to our existence or the appearance of randomness. Well, I think there's certainly randomness. And, and that's a different question is why is there randomness? which I, I, I love that question. It's, it's very similar to the question of why is there evil, right? Why, why, are things, why do things happen that don't make any sense or seemingly don't make any sense? And, I, and, and that's a, a separate uh, exploration, but let's stay on point with this question of magic. And I think fundamentally uh, we can use the word magic to describe a lot of things that all of the spiritual masters of the past have been seeking which is how do they find true unity with the universe, maintain 
their own personality such that they can be conscious of what they're experiencing as magic? And how can they celebrate that magic in some sort of human, uh, honest, uh, authentic way? None of that is possible, right? The magic all becomes a negative word, right? Where, oh, well, it's just magic. Like it's all like pretend or it's an illusion, right? Versus like actually discovering power, like magical power, which is, I think, ultimately what we really love. Isn't that what good filmmaking really is? It's creating that magic. And you could also argue that a life well lived is a life where we are consistently creating magic within our within our lives, of our selves, our families, our friends, even our business relationships, you know. The one the the memories that, that stand out to me throughout my life are ones that, that resonate in a magical feeling. This is kind of where I was originally driving when I asked you the question about the traumas that led to entrepreneurship, which is that I think that entrepreneurs fundamentally wake up to a notion early for whatever reason. Like there's a, there's a whole bunch of traumas that can lead to this kind of an awakening, but an awakening to the notion that the magic is real and we can chase it and we can find it. I love that. I, I think that's spot on, Ryan. How do you feel about that, Chris? Do you resonate with that too? Uh, to an extent, yeah. I mean, I think for me, magic is simply that which we describe magic are simply things we can't figure out how to articulate properly. But they might have called magic 200 years ago. You know, us is, you know, just like that's just technology, you know, a discovery. And so as we, you know, I saying, if you erase everything or do your best to erase everything you've ever been taught and start over, then you can all of a sudden realize a lot of things, you know, such as there are no real rules except for those which I impose upon myself or which were externally opposed on, imposed on me from the beginning of my programming. When you sort of wake up to that one day and realize that there's no one really calling the shots except for you, therefore, then anything becomes truly possible. And that's where, you know, intention and your, your ability to flex your intention upon, you know, the different energies and paths of the world is really comes into play. We, I think that's an important threshold for people to cross and because it tends to help eliminate a lot of fear. So I love that place that you arrived at, which is where you take a lot of personal responsibility. Yeah. The place that I find that is where, where it becomes even more fascinating is when you push that into the corner of realizing there are some things that are just totally incongruous and can't sit next to each other such that you can't be both someone who wants to perpetuate evil and find out what your soul is like when it's good, Indeed. right? So you can't be a, you can't say, I'm going to both seek virtue and be a mass murderer. It doesn't work, right? So then everything isn't possible. Every path has conclusions. Every path has consequence. Would you consider Sergeant York a mass murderer? I mean, he did kill, uh, you know, a lot of people, but he did it for a certain reason. So it would suggest some kind of dimensionality. Different. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, ha it definitely has dimensionality. What, I, what I'm talking about is what you're, you're right on point there, which is there are rules woven into the fabric of the universe. So it seems such that some of the rules, if we conform to them, give us greater access to certain types of power. Whereas if we don't conform to those rules of the universe, then we often lose that power. So I have a theory, these are, these are working theories that I test, which is 
that I believe that fundamentally goodness should actually lead to deeper happiness because it should allow us to tap into the power that's fundamentally woven into the universe that gives human beings the true ability to know what it means to be full of joy. The connectivity between us means that when, I think when someone commits evil, you're actually harming yourself in, one, in, a, in a very uh, in a holistic way. There's a connected energy to everything. So the murderer who kills the person is actually act, harming themselves because they are part of the whole. And there's, you know, whether they die right there, there's certainly a major effect on them. You see that theme in literature, you know, throughout history. A hundred percent. But but so, Chris, do you see how in that sense, there are rules woven into the fabric of the universe that aren't just things imposed upon us by other humans or things that we create ourselves. There, there are sets of rules given in certain, you know, like Newtonian physics is great until you go down to a certain level and then all of a sudden it completely breaks down. So I would say that, you know, rules tend to exist in dimensional bubbles that, you know, they exist in you know, certain areas and certain sizes and scales to an extent. But even, you know, quantum non-locality, they've demonstrated in the last few years, exists on a much larger scale than they even thought possible. These rules might be very flexible. You know, and I think even looking at things like you it, know, the double slip experiment, observation changes rules. And so rules, tend, the universe seems to be a lot more flexible than we might be led to believe. Well, no, science is a lot more flexible because I think what you just identified is the old Thomas Kuhn structure of scientific revolutions notion where enough knowledge appears that's anomaly to what we think is true and we have to revise our theory. That's not necessarily the rules of the universe changing or being flexible. That's our knowledge growing and what's actually true about the universe. Sure, but I think our own knowledge and our own enlightenment in my opinion, because we're connected, contributes to the growth of the universe. There's some kind of change in the universe as a whole because of that connectivity. Go, I, my, yeah. The way I'm thinking Keep, about once once they demonstrated that observation can actually change behavior of things, that suggests something that's pretty mind blowing. That it, we don't, you know, which no one really knows where to go with. There's a lot of theories out there, but you know, the moment you know that experiment happened and we saw it, it's been demonstrated over and over again that observation changes reality or at least the way we measure reality. Explain to me what you mean by this. Like, w- observation changing what reality? Well, okay. Who's observing uh, and who's being changed? Or what's, be- or what's observing and what's being changed? Uh, everyone familiar with the double slit experiment? I Spell think I did one of those in college, but I think it was a different thing. Well, long story yeah. short, <laughs> ba- basic, basically, the, uh, basically the, you know, the, they found that when humans actually observe subatomic particles traveling they actually change their behavior whether we're at and it's as simple as us basically oh, right, right. The, subatomic, the subatomic particles change their behavior yes the subatomic which so, is which is insane when things are observed or acknowledged as existing their behavior changes yeah not only and that, behavior, but you're saying their physical characteristics correct yeah it's it's insane it's it's a pretty that what you know that that first experiment was done like, you know, a long time ago, but they've repeated it ever since. And, you know, that's, I mean, sorry, I'm really into the quantum, you know, discoveries because there's so much no, happening there, but it's, it's, it's a philosophical and scientific thing. All of a sudden you're like, hold on a second. We always assumed that if a tree falls in the forest, that it definitely makes a sound and that we know that, you know, and I'm not saying that literally, but I'm just saying that, you know, 
all these things around us, we assume happen whether we're there or not. If I knock on my shelf right now, that's a shelf. But just by demonstrating that things change behavior because we've looked at them, because we're actually actively observing them, all of a sudden it begs this question, well, hold on a second. So the universe just isn't going around us doing what it's, whatever it naturally does. It actually changes based on our just observing it. That suggests a lot of, a lot of stuff. It plays off that interconnectedness, you know, and the energy, which is, which is magic because it's a mystery to us. It's kind of like they've done those also those studies where if you say nice things to your, uh, to they, they put water in Petri dishes or whatever, and they've had people say cuss words with, with uh, you know, nasty intent to the water and then different set of water. And apparently it's all supposed to be, you know, the same stuff and, and whatnot in a vacuum. And they, they say nice things to a different set of water and the, mole, the molecules actually change change their characteristics to, you know, the, the water molecules that have been created start to break down and, and, and fall apart. And I might be getting some of the details wrong, but, but the, the concept is, is, has been scientifically studied and shown. So I think it speaks to the same type of thing that you're talking about, Chris. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. That, you know, somehow we're connect, we're not separate from, we're actually connected in such a way where we can, at least observe our environment simply through observation, which could be as simple as maybe there's maybe there's an electromagnetic thing we're putting off that we're not even aware of. Maybe it's that simple, which would you know help get Newtonian physics back in line. But like, so, so you there's know, really no such thing as objectivity. That yeah, to an extent, it only exists in a relative space, kind of like you know non-locality or you know superposition. That you you get subatomic enough, you can never actually say where something is. It only exists in a potential state. And it only say, it exists in a relational space. Well, no, they, well, yeah, but they, well, yeah, the, the terminology would say potential. They can't actually tell you exactly where particles are. They can tell you the potential of where they are, and then they find that subatomic level they, that things actually don't. It's not like, hey, this is at point X, Y, Z in space. They can't do it when you get small enough. It's just it exists somewhere in this space, and we can't tell you how. And it's not it's not our tools. This is actually its inherent uh, existence. Right. But at the same time, all of that deep physics relies on how everything relates to each other, which I think then is a fascinating reversion to the notion that the universe is relational in a very personal sense that explains to me why I mean, it doesn't necessarily like explain in detail, but explains philosophically why everything is relationally interconnected if fundamentally at the core of the entire universe is a, re- is a being that has enough personality to have intention when they're writing the code. No, and I'm actually in agreement with that. I just can't explain it properly. But I, my, my hunch, my intuition, even though I haven't logically articulate i can't logically articulate it to you i am in agreement with you i do believe there's intention when you say that that being writing the code who would that be for you would that be god well i mean it's certainly god that i'm seeking to know right i mean i don't i don't claim to have like the kind of life experience that is like jesus is my homeboy you know because i just (laughs) never had that kind of life experience but i certainly have had real experience by the way 
Yeah, I think it is already. But um, <laughs> I think I think I think it was Madonna who made that T-shirt famous. I think you can Google that. Madonna, <laughs> Jesus is my homeboy. Um, but so I haven't had the kind of life experience or spiritual experience that makes God incredibly personal in a like appear before me, speak uh, audibly um, kind of experiences. My experience has been much more metaphysical about interconnectedness and a sense of personality and a sense of intention and sometimes like deeper insight into what's happening in the universe. At least it feels like that. And it feels like it's insight that's being given to me rather than insight that I somehow conjured. Right. And so okay. I attribute all those, I attribute all of those things to God. Um, and then I seek to try to understand what God is. And I seek to try to know God as best I can as a human being. But I don't have a lot. Wait, when, when you get really deep into the theology, I start to run into a lot of walls because I'm much more in tune with the vastness of God than I am with the specifics of right. That's well put. names. Right. That's well. That's well. So, but sometimes I think people limit. Uh, I'll, I'll use the word we were using before: the magic of God. And I think that's where that's where theology becomes a challenge of some people, because m- mankind kind of screws it up. I had a wonderful professor in college ask me a fantastic question one time. He said to me, "He said, what percentage of the knowledge of the universe do you think you have?" And I thought, I'm like, I don't know, somewhere far less than 1%. And he said to me, <laughs> arrogant, right? <laughs> You're arrogant, <laughs> right? And I said, okay, okay, I don't know what the number is. It's just teeny tiny. The percentage of the knowledge of the universe that I have is teeny tiny. And he said to me, he said, do you think it is possible that in all the knowledge that exists that you don't have, that God might exist? And I was like, I don't know how you say no to that. Right, right. Right? So there's no way to not be incredibly, unbelievably arrogant and be an atheist. So I think that from a logic standpoint, that we can we can be a agnostic, the classic Greek a gnosko, I don't know. We can be a I don't know guy. Cool. Right. Right? But I like the how moment you put that around. I think that's very very poignant. Right. But the way that, you know, but if we are to step out and then start making these huge claims about the universe, I think we lose the humility of knowledge that allows us to not only punt to the magic, like punt to the mystery and just say, ah, we will never know. We're just little human beings, but instead pay homage and almost like, um, you know, humbly submit ourselves to the vastness of the universe such that we might actually then get in tune with that real power. Yeah. I think that's it's what, that, zen, that Zen-like middle ground. That's the sweet spot. You know? What is that? What did you say? Dim light, little ground? No, I said, I think it's the Zen, the Zen-like middle ground. Ah, uh, Zen-like that, middle ground. <laughs> but you could say Dim-like. You sound like we were ordering off of a Chinese menu. Fair what enough. You, what you thought I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
so we've, we've now established enough to at least have some hypothesis as to why do the three guys on this phone call like seeking magic, right? On, on one level or another. So tell me, t- tell the people that are listening a little bit about the, 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 the small portions of magic that you're bringing to the universe in your businesses. So Miles, tell everybody a little bit about what you do and then Let's circle back to Chris. <laughs> right, I love you, man. I I I love that arc you just created. Mm-hmm. So so uh, what we're trying to do uh, with our our businesses here in Georgia is create an infrastructure in the entertainment industry. So we're working right now on setting up a distribution company for uh, content distribution originating from here in Georgia. Um, Obviously, I have the magazine, Georgia Hollywood Review, that really celebrates and highlights uh, the, the creatives here, here in Georgia, making a difference in the industry. We have the TV channel that does the same thing. Um, we've recently set up a production company called Grow Georgia Films, specializing in creating Oscar and any contender content with Georgia talent above and below the line. Um, but and then we also have a publicity management and talent agency where we take Georgia talent to the next level. So really, everything we're doing has the focus of building industry infrastructure in the state of Georgia and bringing us up to the level, you know, the next level as a state and as an industry and doing our small part. So you know, for me, the magic in that is helping other people to tell their stories and other people to live out their dreams and to achieve their goals, um, you know, as well as creating my own stories with, with teammates and colleagues, you know, who I'm working on writing uh, several scripts and concepts. Um, some, are, some are based on iconic figures in American history. Some are just based on social issues that, that are relevant today. Um, but for me, that's, that's, where the paradigm of the magic lies in this industry is is just being able to tell whatever story you want in the best way you know how with professionals like Chris, you know, with Crafty Apes who who are the best of the best in the visual effects world, um, you know, to, to make those stories and those messages really resonate with the magic. And Chris, why don't you dive in and, and share a little bit about what you guys do and the moment I'm thinking about multiverses, but fine. Um, the uh, in this universe, like well, uh, we do you know visual effects. We what a lot of people call movie magic. You know, it's uh, what's cool about what we're doing is it's always developing so fast. It's such a young industry. It's you know the youngest department on a film set, and so every day there's new stuff. And you know, as much as a uh, you know disaster that COVID's been, you know, for you know people's lives, livelihood, it's it's actually forced a revolution in our industry and accelerating a lot of technologies. And so, you know, that's, you know, as magic, you know, that we, you know, call science a few days later. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, stuff that's, you know, going on with machine learning, we're doing a lot of, uh, you know, deep fake R&D automation things that, and it doesn't, the funny thing is it doesn't actually, what's cool about visual effects is every time we figure out how to do something faster, it tends to create more jobs, not less, because what happens is we could do some, and then some producer says, oh, you can do that? Here, you guys do this now. And so it's not a, it's kind of the opposite of how a car factory might work with automation. Um, and so, yeah, we're, uh, you know, it's, every day is exciting. You know, we're, 
into a lot of VR stuff right now, you know, utilizing game engines to uh, build environments, um, digital people. I mean, if all movies are just environments and people, we're working on both of those, you know, in terms of how to make it faster, better, um, how to do things quicker. And it's every day is different. I mean, there's a, the industry is very free with the knowledge and people pass around data and it's, uh, it's just a bunch of, a uh, bunch of nerds and they're very, you know, above all, just very curious people, um, figuring out new ways to, uh, help directors and storytellers uh, get stuff on the screen. How much fun are you having building a community of curious people? I mean, that's all, that's, it's, it's, it's all I work with. It's a blast. I mean, it's, uh, if you can keep that sort of childlike curiosity your entire life, um, that's, that's a pretty damn well life lived. And it's, uh, you know, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And so I've been very, uh, you know, I, I can't, I guess I'll say lucky if luck is the residue of design. Like, you know, I've, I've mm-hmm. definitely intended to find myself among curious people that are like-minded and, uh, you know, we just have a blast, you know, it's, uh, stuff happening right now is so exciting. I mean, as much as, you know, COVID's a pain in the ass, it's, you know, we're about to see a lot of virtual environments and things that just all of a sudden, you know, are going to revolutionize a lot of things that, you know, would have taken normally a number of years because, you know, Hollywood's so risk adverse because the producer just can't take a chance on something unless it's a music video or something. Which is why you see so many breakthrough technologies coming out of music videos and commercials because they can be a bit more daring. You know, if you watch the uh, behind the scenes for like The Mandalorian, we're going to see a lot more of that. I mean, my personal aim is I want it to, I want to bring that to the masses. I don't want that to be just something that the highest end, you know, super expensive TV show can afford. I want you know, a mid-budget narrative that's really going after a beautiful story, you know, the kind of movies, you know, win Oscars and things like that. I want them to be able to use this technology and be familiar with it, not be scared of it and understand what's going on. Because that's something VFX is, a, you know, that's something we haven't sometimes done the best job of, you know, as an industry is educating a lot of people on set as to what we're actually doing. We're kind of these, you know, magic guys, quote unquote, in the corner, you know, that occasionally get called up and how do we do this? Like, yeah, we'll fix it. You know, but you know, I think the more we can do to help let people know, here's what we're doing. Here's the logic behind what we're doing. Um, I think uh, you'll see a much more widespread uh, adoption. You know, it'd be good for Ryan because it'd be a lot more stage shooting and a lot less, <laughs> a lot less yeah. location shooting. So, uh, but yeah, I think we're going to, you know, these virtual environments with game engines, you know, games and video games or games and VFX are starting to emerge in a lot of ways, which is really exciting for us. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. So I know with with the visual, with the traditional visual effects that you do, you, I've often heard you say that if, if someone's good at it, you really can't see it, you know, unless you really know what frame to look for. You can't tell the difference of what was real and what was created in visual effects. Do you think that that same sentiment will apply to the virtual effects that you're, yeah. that you're talking about now? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's always going to be things that, you know, are visual effects because nobody owns like smog of the dragon that doesn't exist, you know, at least in our version of reality. So, you know, there's, you know, right. it's like, Oh, this thing flies into space. Well, we know that, you know, someone didn't attach a camera to, you know, an Elon Musk rocket and send it up, you know, so maybe they did, but you know, there's certain things that are obviously visual effects, but I think for most things, you know, 95% of movies are, you know, people talking in a location and that's what, that's what they are. And so if, you integrate it right. You do it right. I mean, the Mandalorian stuff, like 60 or 70 percent of what was on the screen was a game engine. I mean, the interiors of the bar. I mean, it was pretty amazing. When you, I didn't realize the full extent of it until I saw the behind the scenes, it was like, wow. And so, yeah, I think uh, like anything, you know, it's expensive at first, and then the price will come down. And so, I think 
uh, it'll get better and better. You know, I think uh, digital people is the next big one that we'll see in the next few years where, you know, it's, if we can't have 300 extras on set anymore, you know, and they don't want, you know, doing crowd shots is expensive. You're going to see really good digital people because you're going to see a lot of R&D thrown into that on how to do that properly. And you'll see big libraries get built where you can go buy, like, you know, say we're in a New York coffee shop and, hey, I need to, uh, I need 50 people out here uh, dressed in 80s period gear. There's going to be a library and you're going to be able to go get it and say, okay, we got our digital extras, you know? And so it's not, I don't, you know, some people, I think some of the more traditional purists will say, oh, this takes the magic out of it. And it does. I mean, I love going on location, you know, it's fun. But at the same time, if you really break down what this is and sort of see it as, you know, a more advanced version of the stage, you know, but with the camera, which changes a lot, but it's really location and people in those locations. Um, there's certain things that, you know, you're, always going to want to be on location for but so i don't think this is a magic bullet for everything but i think 20 years from now 10 years from now the normal way to make movies will involve a lot of this stuff and it's pretty exciting it's uh i think uh, maybe not good for a lot of the people you know people in la that own the houses that always get filmed or something like that but i think uh for guys like me and guys like ryan it's great and i think for guys like you as a producer i think uh it's really exciting especially given how many good period stories are out there and how expensive period stuff is i think this will help that a lot if somebody can figure out how to scan those houses that work so well for film sets and upload them into the game engines, then those people still might get paid for the forms of their homes. Oh, yeah, wow. no, that's already, that's already that's happening. Yeah. You're going to, yeah, you're going to see, it'll be, there's going to be a lot of copyright wars and all sorts of things happening. I mean, you've already saw it with the, or some movie that tried to do it recently, you know, and it's not quite there yet, but it's getting close to what happens when I decide to go make a movie and cast John Wayne in it. John Wayne's dead. What? Wow. What is that? What is philosophical? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Yeah. Well, uh, some hedge fund owns the rights to John Wayne, most likely the way they own the rights to Elvis and um, right. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Right. Right. No, you're going to so, see some weird. Yeah. So it creates new engines of commerce, basically. Well, what happens if I Ryan's house is a beautiful location and I scan it for a movie, and then all of a sudden, you know, it does does Ryan get to resell that over and over again, or does he get a buyout like in a commercial and then, you know, say universal or whoever owns the rights to that in perpetuity, you know, how does that, Most how does likely that work? The second. Well, I mean, the universal is going to go for the second. They're going to go for paying you one time and owning the rights in perpetuity. And then it's just a question of the sophistication of the marketplace. What if I change right, the house? Is that sufficiently different? Is it now a new thing? Is it, is it satire? Oh, you, you know, what, you're you're into the, you're into the, the the deep recesses of the uh, of the lawyering class. Well, no, but it's weird how much that drives what we do. I mean, I, I'm sure we've all. I mean, how many NDAs have you signed in your life, and how many times yeah. have you actually has it affected you? <laughs> like, you know, it's it's like <laughs> well, they're gentlemen's right. agreements. Yeah, right. yeah, it's, and uh, like I don't even know what I'm half. I mean, okay, how many pages? You know, okay, you know, it's like, and the, uh, you know, so it's, yeah, no, there's, it's just interesting. It's always a question of precedence, antecedents, like how does everything fit together and who gets, who gets credit for the evolution of things? And, you know, that's been a constant problem in all of human history is trying to account for where ideas and companies and ventures evolve from. And who and who profits from them? So these are all going to be, you know, similar questions that have to get solved. It's just in the world of digital entertainment and digital assets. 
we're out of time. This has been fantastic. I'd love to do it Thank again. You, so, you know, I'll have Thank the producers reach out and and see when we might be able to continue the conversation but thank you guys for taking the time i had a a blast talking to you thank you ryan oh. it was a pleasure oh, thank uh, you, unexpected ryan. unexpected and refreshing as always my brother yeah of course i love you guys all right talk to you soon have a great right, day buddy. i'm ryan Millsap, and this is the black hall studios podcast i'll leave you guys with thoughts that i write on instagram The entire world is yours today. The universe has told it to exist just for you. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.